salam and hello friends. Welcome to Uproot. My name is Lily Bakala Piper and I hope that each of you are tuning in, are doing well, staying healthy, staying at home. I mean, the whole world is shifting day by day. And I don't know about you, but if you've had conversation with friends and girlfriends, partners, maybe you've noticed that there seems to be an additional strain on women and young girls. Here in Kenya, we notice it because we know that so many households are led by women and there's a disparity in educational outcomes. But I feel it too at home, just having to adjust to being everybody at home and all the needs of domestic life and educational life and work life all coming to bear at the same time. It's a lot. It's a lot to think about as a woman. And in fact, I think it's fair to even consider that there might be a patriarchal aspect of this pandemic. Well, I thought it was worth our time to discuss that, and so I've invited my good friend Julie Moabe today to help us tackle this topic and understand it more fully. Julie is a policy and communications professional with over 15 years of experience leading and implementing communication strategies for development and public health. Julie is passionate about redefining the narrative for women and girls and is currently a gender advisor at the executive office of the President of Kenya. Julie works hard to ensure that the needs of women and girls are not left behind in the various strategies and processes that the government is considering in response to the coronavirus. Prior to her current role, she worked at the CDC and at UNICEF, during which time she conceptualized and delivered a range of strategies and campaigns that have led to increased outcomes and opportunities for women and children particularly in the areas of HIV-AIDS, maternal health, gender equity, and child protection. Julie is a proud Nairobian. She was born and raised here, and she lives here with her family and a charming three-year-old little boy. Please help me welcome Julie Mwabe to Uproot. Thank you. Thank you, Lily. Happy to be here. So Julie and I met because we were both attending a function of all women, all women professionals here in Kenya to celebrate a colleague who was moving on to a new post. And we were fortunate to sit at a table with I think about seven or eight other women. And it was one of those experiences where we just immediately started talking about work and family and life. And before you know it, three or four hours had passed and many stories and laughter had been shared. And we have kept in touch since then. And I am so grateful that um, both for your service to Kenya. Thank you. You are a public servant and we are grateful for your leadership. Um, but I'm also grateful for your friendship. So thank you for being here on Uproot today. So, so Julie, we have probably all seen these memes going around talking about, you know, if you are fortunate enough to work from home, then perhaps you'll be the next Shakespeare and write King Lear, or you'll be the next Isaac Newton and discover, you know, a new scientific theory. And the response to those memes from some of the feminist communities has been, well, Shakespeare and Newton did not have childcare responsibilities. So no, that's not happening. We are going to just do our best to make it through. And I think it's a poignant point, And I think that's why this conversation conversation feels really important to me today, which is to talk about what are we starting to see as the effect of COVID-19, specifically on women and girls? How do you see it from your position currently and also just generally as you're looking out at the landscape of how the world's response has been to this virus? Sure. Um, Lily, no. Yes, you know, it is. I know there's all the memes about working from home, and but the reality is not everybody can afford to work from home. Um, so you have, um, you know, economists, for example, Kenya, 
where such a large percentage depend on the informal care. So they're the your cleaners, they're caregivers, they're cashiers, they work in the restaurants. So a lot of these, you know, they're all of a sudden out of work, you know, um, and they're a lot of you know, their families depend on them. So loss of income, going home, there's a strain of being at home, uh, the stress, and we're seeing more violence cases, uh, domestic violence, you know, increasing. Then you have um, the the healthcare, you know, we have sort of 70% of the health, health force is women. So that means they are more exposed. So you have your nurses, your midwives, you know, uh, they're more exposed to uh, uh, getting sick or being infected. Right. And they're the same people who still have to go back home and look after their families and their children. Um, and you also have um, even, you know, uh, the girls who are now not in school anymore, um, what's happening there, you know, they're being exposed to, uh, the, the teenage pregnancies are likely to start rising because we saw those in during the Ebola crisis as well. So there's a lot of that that we're beginning to see. So and, you, you, it's affecting, you know, it's, it's definitely affecting, I mean, it affects men more, you know, physic, as a physical illness. So the numbers show that the men are getting more, but then the impact on women is just, is, is also vast and, and high. You mentioned a lot of things in your response. So let's maybe try and break some of those down and, and, and disaggregate some of the issues one by one. Um, let's maybe start with employment, um, because this lockdown is certainly creating an economic pandemic, if you will, for everybody across the globe. No country will be immune from the economic fallout of COVID-19. Of course, your expertise is here in Kenya, but I think we can extrapolate that experience broadly. How do you see COVID-19 really affecting women in particular in regards to economic outcomes? Let's start there. What are you seeing as the first line or the first kind of wave maybe of this economic fallout? So first wave of line, you know, you have uh, the, loss of, the loss of income, you know. Um, and then there's some countries that can, you know, they're beginning to sort of support uh, uh, their citizens and, you know, the, the tax, something like a tax cut will not work for somebody who's an informal, you know, who depends on the daily wage, yeah, right? Right. Uh, that doesn't work for them. So you have a lot of um, uh, people who are already quickly getting into this desperate situations. Um, and for them, it goes, it's, it goes to no food, you know, not able to feed their families. So the economic impact is very quick and very hard on them that way. Yeah. So we have informal daily laborers who are by these stay at home orders or curfews or other measures are losing income immediately, not savings, not, you know, investments, but immediate day-to-day being able to function is, is loss. Um, do we have a sense in the region of women, what percentage of that workforce is compromised of women? Um, you know, I know I can just think about my community immediately. And I think about the lady down the road who sells baskets, mm-hmm. mostly to tourists, you know, these beautiful um, baskets that are very Kenyan in nature. And I just have been wondering about her, you know, this week, just as an example, is she able to, is she selling anything? I have people who work in my home, you know, and I wonder how many of their colleagues have now found themselves in a place where they don't have employment anymore. Yeah. Your thoughts? Well, we have, I mean, for Kenya, for example, it's 70% of, you know, women are low wage earners, right? Mm-hmm. And then you go to the flower industry, you have that's so 75% of women there. And, you know, you have, you go into a market, 
like 83% the women who sell and trade. So the percentages for women in the, who rely on the inf- informal sector are really high. So something for all of us, I think, to be aware of if we have any kind of, if we are employing women on any scale, on any level, I've seen people responding different ways on social media. Some people saying, as long as I have a job, if I'm employing women, I will continue to employ them or whoever it is, women or men. Um, But then pretty immediately, though, if I lose my you know, source of income, then also my ability to keep my sister employed now becomes, you know, very unlikely. Um, in light of women potentially losing their these jobs and these daily wages, what are we looking at one month, two months, three months down the road as a result of these economic losses? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the projections right now are not looking really good. I know different governments are trying different ways of cushioning the citizens. Uh, there's a cash transfer program uh, where they try, you know, sort of under the social protection mechanism, trying to find ways of giving of, of an, a certain amount of money to just keep them floating. So there are some there are some ideas that are in place. Um, and I, different countries are div- doing it in a different way. But I think the reality and what is getting clear is the most vulnerable are going to be hit the hardest. And yeah. they really put front and center of this crisis and how to, uh, you know, how to mitigate it and just how yeah. to sort of make sure that they remain uh, uh, looked after really as yeah. best as possible. Yeah. So we know that for women who are fortunate, to work from home, which especially in Kenyan context is a minority, a very small minority, as you've already stated very clearly, women in in Kenya in particular are at the front lines of many industries who will not have the option of working from home. But for those that do, there's this concept of having a second shift under normal circumstances where you would leave home in the morning, go to your work, no matter what your work is, informal or formal, come home, and then you have your second shift begins of caring for your home, for your family. Um, and this season now where many of us are indoors all day with our family and are caring for them all day long, it's no longer disaggregated into morning and evening shift, it's just all day. What are some of the messages that you think that employers need to understand about the women on their workforces and the tasks that they're facing under this pandemic? Um even before the key messages, you know, what we are seeing or, you know, even across the world, you have, you know, maybe a couple and they both earn and now one has to stay home. Usually it's the, the person who's learning, who's earning less, you know, will probably give up what they're doing. And so the women will stay home and sometimes a man can continue working. Um, so I think the message would be as an employer, I'd say, you know, please be considerate of, you uh, your employee the reality is they're balancing so much you know trying to be both teacher caregiver uh and their family so uh things like uh flexible hours being more flexible to the timings i know that it may not be nine to five online in front of a laptop but you may be able to do put in some work when your children are asleep or early in the mornings or just whatever works for your family so being open to that kind of thing um and then when I think being sort of flexible when it comes to letting people go, if you can, just uh, I understand pay cuts are happening, but 
I also see like a lot of people who are on the lower scale are the ones who are being pushed out first, you know? Yeah. So you'd be like, you know what? Uh, the cleaner is not coming to work because we're not going to the office so we don't need her anymore. Um, the person who's making your tea or doing all these things we don't need. So we get very fast to sort of cut them off, even though they don't have as much of a bigger impact. So in terms of your, um, you know, your, the, the economic levels, I mean, how much money is being spent, right? Because they're yeah. likely least right so how do you still cushion them even if it's a cut across the board and not not just letting go of people because they're not coming to a physical space yeah I hear what you're one thing I'm hearing from what you're saying is trying to in a time where we're all having to think outside the box a bit and be more creative about how to work maybe also thinking about other instead of just cutting people off thinking about is there another fit for them within our company's new scheme. Um, and so if it's somebody who made the tea, or is there another way to think about offering them opportunities during this time without just doing the usual and start cutting? Because that's what everyone is doing at this time. That's not easy. We recognize that there are challenges in that. But the reason why this is so important goes to your first response that when women start to lose employment, when women start to lose wages, there is a domino effect um, to the family and then ultimately to society and to the country. And so trying to do everything we can to cushion, like you said, their well-being during this time is going to be really crucial to our long-term outcomes. Yeah, and it's it's easy to have a business approach to this kind of things, but I think my encouragement is have a human approach, you know, Mm. look at it, um, have some heart into it, put some heart and just see, like, you know, these are families, these are lives really, um, uh, you know, they're being exposed to other things that you may not be aware of, but it's going to affect them in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to us bouncing back, you know, you probably, the person who'd be bouncing back would be so different from the person who you left because of all the issues they've had to go through because of the crisis. Yes, that's a very good point that at the end of this, nobody will be unaffected, nobody will be the same. And so if we want to come back and have a workforce that wants to come back to work, um, it really matters how we treat people now in this in this season. Julie, in your first response, you talked a little bit, you referenced the Ebola crisis um, of the kind of mid, I don't know, we call the 2010s, I guess, the 2010s. Um, what did we learn from Ebola crisis, from other global health crises that we should be implementing now when it comes to women's health specifically? Let's talk a little bit about the women's health. You've, you've mentioned my previous guest, Dr. Chang Oshul, talked about that men, as it turns out, their response to the coronavirus are not faring as well as women. Some of their outcomes are significantly worse than women. But the other side of that conversation is that, as you've mentioned already, women are a majority, up to 70% of health workers are women. Women in these informal sectors around food and uh, sanitation are women as well. So let's talk about the health of women in this pandemic and what are the things that we should learn or can learn from previous global health crises? Um, I mean, one of the things... uh, that has come out that I've, you know, I've been reading about is during the Ebola crisis, you had, um, you know, by the end of it, uh, the number of women who had died due to childbirth complications were higher than the people who had actually died of Ebola, you know. Mm-hmm. So the reality is, even in the middle of a pandemic as big as this, you know, there are things like, uh, for example, Kenya right now, we have a curfew, right? So right. we all have to be home by 7 p.m. There's a lockdown. I mean, there's a the cafe for now. And other countries have full lockdowns. Um, what happens if somebody, you know, uh, 
a pregnant woman needs to go to a hospital in the middle of the night. You know, they're scared of going. They don't have access to antenatal care during their pregnancies. Um, so you're having a lot of, uh, you know, women who are, you know, just falling through the cracks in that way. Um, and when you, you talked about the sanitary hygiene, uh, how do they access this? Like before, there are systems, maybe it's a school system, you go into a school and the matron in school is able to give you a sanitary pads, but then now you're home and you're all in one uh, confined space. Uh, thing, asking for things like sanitary pads seems like a luxury for some families. So there are women and girls who are not able to access those anymore. Um, and you have, you know, if you look at adolescent girls who have, you know, HIV and they're trying to get their treatment and, and they can't access those anymore. So you have a lot of uh, health outcomes that are likely to sort of start uh, going down while all the focus is on the crisis, right? So um, I think my, my uh, message in this was like, how do we find a way of balancing that as much as all eyes on the crisis, the other health functions are still working. There's a mechanism to ensure that women and girls are still being able to access health services, uh, whether it's um, uh, you know maternal healthcare, whether it's the family planning, whether it's, um, uh, just the sanitary pads as well. So all that. I mean, there's a lot of that that uh, it's, it almost feels like they're all currently on pause, you know? Yeah, right, right. But the reality is you could come out of this crisis and the outcomes on that are, all, are worse. And I, at the end of this show, I will be uh, shouting out some organizations that are specifically thinking about sanitary pad distribution during this time and how to support those girls. But you men mentioned a number of things, both affecting everything from girls to, to women. So we've learned from Ebola that maternal outcomes, shockingly, were worse than the Ebola outcomes for women. More women were dying of complications because now those resources that would have been allocated to their well-being are now being diverted to the well-being of Ebola patients, or were during during the 2010s, and in the United States, I think we see similar um, data around, especially Black women's health. That Black women are twice as likely to die in childbirth than white women in the United States. And during this global pandemic, we know that resources that might have been targeting those vulnerable communities or more vulnerable women are now being diverted to respond to this pandemic, which is going to mean maternal mortality is likely to go up during this time, which is a heartbreaking outcome that I don't think is on many of our minds. I think so many of us are thinking about the immediate day to day, like today's, you know, school is closed this week and X, Y, Z, but there are so many other domino effects of this pandemic. For girls and menstruation, particularly in our part of the world, there's also this issue of toilets, right, and access to toilets. Um, in many informal communities, informal settlements, the ratio of people to toilets can be 50 to 1 to 100 to 1. I've heard thousands to 1 in some communities. What, Julie, what are the things is that we as citizens and, and people who share the same community can maybe, how can we best respond to some of these situations? It, it feels overwhelming to think about. Yeah, um, when it comes to the sanitation situation you know when things are normal when during you know better days you have uh not as many people crammed in once i mean they, they usually already it's already tough but you know because of schools uh a lot of girls are now are in school and they're able to access some of those um uh you know amenities and they're able to get the pads and able to use and they're able to even have the education around it right, right. Um, but then now when they're back 
home, confined, uh, quarantined, and there's a toilet, and like you said, one to 50 or one to 100. Um, already in that space, you can imagine uh, what they're being exposed to. Number one, yeah. uh, how do you ask for a sanitary pad at this point? You know, they're like, of all the things, you know, it's yeah. such a, it's, you know, um, they're not able to access that uh, in terms of their own health, in terms of their own security, uh, being able to go to this. I mean, it's not like there's a female toilet and a male toilet, you know, it's just yeah. a toilet. You can go if it's early in the morning or late at night. Um, so I think I'm beginning to see people rally around, think about dignity kits, where you have some soap, some a sanitary pad, a little underwear, and being able to sort of put packages together with dry foods and sort of being able to give families or uh, finding ways of engaging girls and still giving them that kind of thing. So I know the, the hard thing about this kind of thing is the, the social distancing. So when you go into such communities, how do you sort of have right. where you're able to even give this facts and still maintain social distancing and who are you working with? Are you allowed? You know, there's all this nuances and questions. However, for those interested, you know, we, I mean, we're happy to think through how to work uh, some dynamics around it and sort of create uh, mechanisms at work. Yeah. I saw that um, this week, and I, I'm, forgive me, I can't remember if it's Kenya specifically, but one country in the region, if not Kenya, um, pastors were asking to be considered essential workers uh, in some of these curfew situations because some of, we might have to look at different ways to distribute sanitary pads in the absence of school programs that may have done it before. Um, we might have to look at creative ways. Maybe churches will be one place, but I will certainly at the end of this episode link to places that are working um, already in informal settlements who are places where we can contribute money in the very least. And, but I would say, I think to most of my listeners who are in a position where they are employing people, where they have some influence, be it small or, or large, to consider keeping women employed as much as possible, even if they no longer need their services, keeping them on some kind of pension or something so that we know, because we know that if women continue to re receive the cash transfers or access to some kind of monies that that money is going to be used to serve their families I mean I think research shows us that as well is that they're much more inclined to make sure that the families being needs are being met whether it's maternal yeah. health or sanitary yeah and one of the things that uh in our work we've been really talking about is when you have that cash transport program when you're able to give it to a family do you give it to a man or do you give it to a woman mm -hmm. uh you know a lot of households are female-headed households even as much as they still have men in their house uh, but then, like you said, uh, looking at history and looking at the data and seeing how men and women spend the money differently yeah. in such situations. Yeah. And, you know, I just, as we're talking, I, I'm just struck again how hard this is. I mean, it's not easy. There's no easy answer that we can point to and say, oh, if we just do this, there we go. We can definitely take care of women and girls 100%. It is... So hard. I mean, I just am, I myself, as somebody who wanted to engage on this issue, find it really hard to know the best way to go about being responsive to the patriarchal part of this pandemic, really, you know? Yeah, and, and the way I've been trying to explain it, it's like an airplane that's taken off and you're trying to fuel mid-air because, yes. you know, we are all trying to figure it out as we go and, um, I mean, on one hand, I've seen me who's back in public service and I've seen the best of government in the last few weeks. And I've seen how, you know, people are rallying around and trying to really see uh, and understand and listen to each other. So being able to even talk about the gender issues, the women and girls, and you get a lot of people saying, oh, wow, 
I never thought of that. I never thought that, you know, they, they experience certain things differently, you know. So you're right. I mean, it's it's just being, talking about it is one, is, is a yeah. big part of it. Absolutely. So unless it's in my view, I don't know, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm reminded of um, the patron saint of Uproot, Wangari Mathai, who, you know, says, you know, do your little thing, right? So our little thing right now is maybe just raising the alarm, asking people to consider if you're an employer, if you're an employee, if you're a person in a neighborhood, if how are the women around you faring? To stop today and think about how are the women that I pass every day on the way to work, who I used to stop and buy fruit from or whatever, is she still there? Is she able to work? Where, what has happened to her? And, and just like you said, to raise it as a, something for all of us to consider as we're thinking about our own families, getting the food we need for this week, or managing our children's school, to also be thinking about the other women in our community. It's, it's very easy to be, um, yeah. And you let you know, uh, whether it's somebody who was helping out in your house or a nanny, you yes. know that. You know, where me and my family, we need to be isolated. But you know what? They're your family too. They're your community. You'll be out of this. You will need them. Um, and just being able to sort of, how can you, even if they're not coming into your house anymore, how are you able to still check in on them? You know, how, how are you still able to support them? And Absolutely. how to uh, ensure that collectively we sort of all pull Absolutely. So I hope this doesn't sound self-important, but one thing that crossed my mind this week is that, um, you know, we used to get our hair done regularly. This is why I'm in this thing now, because it's not happening regularly anymore. (laughs) And, you know, I I did think about um, the amazing women who have been doing my hair for many, many years and just sent them something small this week you know, a thousand bob, two thousand bob. And um, the messages I got back from them, you know, it's, I, I won't be able to, I, this were not like, uh, this is not deposit on future. It's just like, I was thinking of you. I have this margin I can share. Let me share it. The messages I got back, they were like in tears. Like, thank you so much for just thinking of us. And it is, you know, I don't have any access to the UN or other government agencies, but I do have these pe- few people who have been a part of my daily life. And so if there are people whom, whose services you were using before, laundry services or cooking services or hair service, whatever it is, these small, you know, roles, they are likely completely without income right now. And so being able to send them something small during this time or buying, I've seen some companies urging people to buy uh, vouchers that can be redeemed later that will keep those small businesses afloat. We know many, many women here in Kenya are entrepreneurs and are keeping the economy afloat and during normal times because there are all these small side hustles and there's some great organizations who are working to empower female entrepreneurs during this time. I'll link to them as well because I think those are small ways that we can do too. There are a lot of organizations who are still selling products and providing services that we can support during this time because it's not just women and it's just an informal work, but middle income, low income, you know, small entrepreneurs are also need our support during this time. Right. Yeah, so I'll link up to those. So, uh, Ms. Moabe, in your role as a gender advisor in the Office of the President, off of Executive Office of the President of Kenya, from where you sit, what does a feminist response to COVID-19 look like? Um, and what do we want to see from partner our neighboring countries? And what would a feminist response in the continent look like to you? Well, I mean, in the continent, uh, you're seeing a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of press briefings at the moment. You're seeing yes. a lot of leadership and 
it's a lot of it is male, you know, and unless we have women in those decision making roles, unless we have them embedded into this task forces, um, then we still have decisions that are not including, you know, they're not inclusive of women and women's needs. So um, I think being uh, the Kenyan government for sure, uh, I, I can say, I mean, I'm there. So we have more women in sort of. Thank you. <laughs> But then in terms of, you know, uh, the task force and those key decisions, I think it's just encouraging um, them to be more inclusive of women. And uh, because we see things differently, you know, we experience it uh, daily. So we're able to uh, uh, ask, you know, for example, on data, you know, we need to be able to know how data, how, uh, you know, how, how are the economic how women affected differently uh, health-wise. So unless we have those da- that data, uh, the decisions cannot be made. And you can, you, it's, it's it, and I think a lot of pandemics, you end up having uh, data that's not sex disaggregated. So unless we're able to do that and push for those kind of things, then uh, we'll sort of just be in a cycle. And Absolutely. Not- Absolutely. No, That's, there was an article this week that you and I were talking about before we started recording called uh, The Corona's virus is a disaster for feminism. And one of the points that the author Helen Lewis makes, um, this article was in the Atlantic, she makes at the end of the article is that there, the data collected on these global health crisis either didn't include women's health, disag- disaggregated, like you said, by gender, or it wasn't measured at all. So the rates of teenage pregnancy were not captured. You know, was there a change in that? The rates of reporting of domestic violence wasn't wasn't recorded during those specific crises. And so, like you said, here we are trying to fuel midair again during a global pandemic where women and girls are are being affected disproportionately because there is not a feminist agenda at the top of organizations. And so, as, yeah, please. Like you know, being able to, like you said, get it. What are the lessons learned? What did we learn from other pandemics that we can sort of and like you say, as much as things are already moving fast, what are some of those lessons? Try employ as part of the research and uh, uh, and part of the action plans moving forward. Absolutely. And so, you know, if we have listeners here who are part of response teams in your organizations, um, I think it's a, a it's a worthwhile exercise to reflect. Is, are your policies and your responses feminist in nature? And feminist does not just mean pro-women, right? It means that we are capturing everything that would happen to women and girls as it, as it affects a larger body of people, as it affects an entire organization and an entire ecosystem of business or education or health. Having a feminist approach does not mean it's anti-men, but that it elevates everybody's needs at equal attention, equal funding, equal response in light of this pandemic. Is that a fair definition? Whenever someone, you know, you sort of say, oh, I'm working in gender. They're always like, oh, what about the boy child? You know, yes. gender, you know, you sort of don't pull the gender card. And it's, that's not what it is. It's exactly what you said. It's ensuring that uh, everybody has access to, you know, uh, what they need. Uh, not one is being left behind or falling through the cracks. Absolutely. And I mean, we, I think we see that. I mean, just in, in what's happening in Malaysia in this last week, where women were told to dress up for their online work. Did you see that? And, okay. not, and not nag their husbands. I was like, um, where is the male, where is the message to the men to 
contribute equally and to participate and not nag their wives for lunch. I mean, I just was blown away by that. But this is why we still need gender advisors in the office of the president. This is why we need gender parity in response to crises is because our um, implicit bias is still patriarchy. It's still towards the male. I mean, we have not, we are not in a post-gender society in any country. um, No, and our responses are very gender blind. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, we were discussing this as well earlier that there is no gender neutral policy when it comes to pandemics. We have to be gender specific. This is not the time to pretend that we all are affected the same because we're just not. And we never are. But in particularly when there's a, a global crisis of this scale, we must consider the woman and the girl child very specifically in our policies and our responses. Great. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm touched by your agreement in that. Um, <laughs> there, you, you mentioned in your first response, and I want to make sure that we give it time here. There seems to be an uptick in the reporting of domestic violence during this time. Um, some countries have actually implemented a ban on the sale of alcohol. I saw that Peru has done that mm-hmm. because they see a direct link between the consumption of alcohol and abusive patterns. So they've actually banned the sale of alcohol. Um, And we're seeing that this quarantining, this place where government is now staying, stay home, reinforces some of the abusive messages that perpetrators tell their victims or their, let's call them survivors. Um, Help us understand better why domestic violence is something that we all need to keep in mind when we are maybe considering where to donate and how to support and what to be aware of during this pandemic? Well, I think, I mean, the reality is everybody's under a lot of stress. And with that comes the pressure, um, uh, the financial pressure where you're not bringing money. Like your lady you're talking about who is doing your hair, she's not able to take that money back. I mean, probably you're doing your hair every week, every two mm-hmm. weeks. Every 10 days. Every 10 days. <laughs> you know, they're not able to take that money back home, right? And what we know about violence, you know, the people, whether it's children or whether it's women, it's the people who are closest to you. And uh, in normal circumstances, there are sort of, um, you know, the avenues, there are places you can, go, especially like, for example, if you're planning on leaving a, a, a violent situation and you've been putting together your plan, you don't have that plan anymore, right? Um, and like you say, there's alcohol included, there's uh, all these uh, factors with people just being in one space. Uh, and those numbers are surging. I mean, I've been seeing those articles, I've been seeing reports on an increase on gender-based violence. And like you, like you said earlier, because everything is just going so fast, uh, yeah. we haven't, most people haven't thought, oh, okay, what do we have in terms of our referral system, right? Do we have shelters in place where, you know, women can still be able to go to I mean yeah. what are we doing with, uh, conditions so um, and it's the same for children you know yeah. uh, the people who abuse children the most are the world those closest to them on normal days mm-hmm. they go to school uh, they have a teacher who they may be able to talk to but then now now, now they don't but I'll also take it further Lily and talk about uh, the cyberspace you know cyberbullying the, you have a lot of uh, children now who are online um, and unless they're being well supervised or you are in team to it, they're getting into chat rooms and there's a lot of things happening in that space that you may not even be aware of as a parent. So being able to be aware of these things uh, and keeping your eyes open 
Yeah. And it, it's not just a situation for people in low earning homes. It's, it cuts across the board. Um, and what do we need to, how do we support uh, people in these situations? How do we keep the communication lines open? Are right. they in hotlines that are still working that, you know, that, but that's the thing. If I call a hotline, where will you refer me to? So unless I have those uh, referral pathways that are clear and part of the policies and I'm going to be communicated clearly, then um, yeah. it's, 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 it's a tough situation. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's overwhelming, and I think we we again one thing we can do is start with the people we know and are in our immediate sphere of influence, our immediate communities, checking in on them, their welfare, are they doing well, making sure yeah we provide what we can to support those we know, and then from there seeing what structures are in place. And one thing that I'm struck by that I read this week too is that um, shifting a little bit from the domestic violence, but even into how it affects young people and girls specifically, is that after if people are pulled out of school now and girls are being pulled out of school now because of the government mandate, many of them won't go back in a few months when schools reopen um, because families will have made a decision that you know, this girl, let's let, let her get married, let her earn income. We've already lost this time or, or she's, preg- she's pregnant now. Um, and so there's no, there's the need to invest in her education seems less of a priority. Julie, help us think through that. Can you walk us through why some of those choices become particularly painful and, and urgent for girls and the families of girls? I think, you know, when you think about the amount of advocacy that goes into teenage pregnancies and you know working with communities and families because it's not just about the girl it's about their parents about the communities and sort of getting to a place where you've convinced them to let the girl stay in school I mean it takes it's a lot of work that's been put in yeah Um, so they're in school a lot of them go boarding school or day school they're out during the day Um, and the minute now they're back home uh, you know I think was it uh, we're talking about earlier during the Ebola crisis, you know, there's an increase of, I think, 14,000 uh, teenage pregnancies. Uh, these are, you know, usually by their family members, those at home. Um, and beyond that, even stuff like a female, female genital mutilation, you know, goes into an example practice because people now go back to their, what's their norms, you know, yeah. their cultural norms and sort of tend to rely on that. And like you mentioned, the early marriages, again, this is, you know, some, it's a, a, a point of, of, of uh, income, you know. Uh, yeah. If someone's going to give me some money to marry off my daughter, I need the money right now. Uh, forget all those lessons and the advocacy and all those people who've been coming and telling me that my daughter needs to be in school. This makes sense for me now. So yeah. I think uh, we are likely to see a reverse in sort of a lot of those gains that have been made. Um, again, the people who suffer the most are those who are most vulnerable, it's the girls, it's the teenage girls who have no platform like this, who no one's speaking for them, who are they're invisible, you know, they're fall, really falling through the cracks. So um, how do we ensure that, you know, this, the policies come into place, the mechanisms as part of the response uh, uh, have this in mind? Yeah. Now, for the stretch of this. 
And I think, again, you know, it's, it's easy to listen to all of this and just feel like, well, I can't do anything. I don't, I'm not, I'm nobody. I have no role. I have no money. I don't, I'm not a supervisor. I can't do nothing. But I think, I hope that people listening will take all of this into thought. If you are in a position to contribute money to organizations, do so to organizations that have a feminist agenda and feminist leadership. So the leader might be a man, but he can very well be a feminist in the way he implements policy and distributes funding. Um, as this pandemic, God willing, comes to a close sooner rather than later, and you are looking at organizations, look at those organizations who are targeting women and girls, because for sure, as you said, Julie, they will have lost ground as a result of this pandemic. And in six months time, or whenever we all come out of this, they will really need our support. They will need our support Thank you so much, Julie Mwabe. It's been a joy to have you here. And you've, as I think that's what the, the goal was, was to raise awareness for us all to be thinking about this outside of just our own little family, think about our broader community, and in particular today to think about women and girls. Thank you for the many years you've committed to women and girls and elevating us and making sure that we have what we need to thrive. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for being on our boat. See you soon, I hope. Feels like we're almost together. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on Uproot. Thank you. So grateful for my friend Julie for spending some time with us to just kind of share what the landscape really is like for women and girls. So some important things I want to share with you. First of all, if you yourself or someone you love or know is a victim of domestic abuse or any kind of gender-based violence, there is a national hotline in Kenya that you can call. Simply call 1195 1195. It's nationwide in Kenya. It's toll free. It is for survivors. It is for current victims. If you know somebody you're concerned, please call them. We had a friend who called and verified that they are up and running 24 hours a day, ready to take your calls and offer support. So please reach out if you need it. Secondly, there's a wonderful organization called Laja Trust, who has been working with adolescent and young women in Nairobi for a few years now. They work in Mukuru and Kibera and Kangwari and different informal settlements, providing leadership and mentorship to young girls. In light of COVID-19, they've started a food distribution program and have already served 5,000 families. In their next distribution, they want to make sure they get sanitary pads to these girls and young women in these communities. So if you would like to support them, you can simply just go to their website, lajatrust.org. That's L-A-J-A trust.org. I'll also leave information about them in the description of this podcast, where you could just scroll down, you'll see their MPESA line, and you can just copy paste, send them whatever you can to help them reach these girls and families and make sure that they make it through this pandemic with a bit of dignity. Thanks so much for listening, listeners. It's not an easy topic. I feel a bit overwhelmed by it, thinking about what I can do better. But I also am a real believer in what Julie said. When we are more aware of the facts and more aware of the needs, we simply will think and hopefully behave differently. So I'd love to hear from you, friends. If you've got topics or ideas of things that you'd like to learn about in this kind of new world that we're living in, just send me a message. On Twitter and Instagram, it's at Uproot and Lil. You can email me, uprootthepodcast at gmail.com, Facebook, Uproot the Podcast. I love hearing from you. Until we talk again, stay healthy, wash your hands, stay safe. I'm wishing all of you peace and health in these coming days. Keep at it until it stays rooted, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Mm-hmm.